really when we when we um, talk about our intentions and our hopes for people, I have a, a sense that what we share so much is um, uh, what what I feel and what I feel we all feel is that uh, we recognize a feeling that that goes in the story that the person is mentioning, even if that's not our situation. And uh, for myself, and I think for all of us, it's uh, such a way of feeling connected to people, that everybody's just the same. All of us want for our people to do well. We want for our children to thrive. We want for our parents to age as comfortably as they can. We want for our own lives to unfold. And um, I think so much of the two sides of everything. This is the month that uh, people graduate from places. And uh, I just saw the, the newspaper briefly, uh, I think it was yesterday's New York Times, had a picture of a man at a graduation embracing a young graduate. And it said under the picture that uh, the older man was embracing this young graduate. It was not his son, it was a friend of his son, and his son should have been graduating yesterday and uh, died recently. I've forgotten whether it was in an accident or died of an illness, but he was there at the graduation that his son should have been at. And, you know, I think about that sometimes when I'm at graduations. I remember saying that last year, seeing thousands of graduates graduating from San Francisco State, uh, from Sonoma State, and my grandson, one of them. And I was thinking about everybody's looking for their person, you know, that everybody comes in and all around, and they're walking in, they look pr pretty much the same. You see four different streams coming in, you don't even know where to look first, people in purple gowns coming in all over the place. And all around, if you listen to the people around you, what they're all saying is, where is he? There she is. No, no, that's not her. No, look over there. That's her. And every group of people has a her or a him that they're looking for. Everybody looks more or less the same, you know, they're walking in with a rope. And then they get so excited when their person, I do too. There he is. No, it's not him. Oh, there he is. There's him. And uh, I, think, I, th I remember thinking and saying it a year ago that maybe it's my own uh, sort of macabre mind or uh, I don't know whether it's a wise mind or a what mind, but I'm thinking to myself, I was thinking to myself, I wonder where the parents of those people who should have been graduating in this class, in this place, are over the four years of their college or over the 18 years of their lives. How many people didn't make it to this or to this or to that for whatever reason? There's something about knowing that that happens. You know, I, I often tell, tell about the story about my friend who died some years ago, who's uh, told me that the liberating thought she had in the period of time that she knew she was dying, younger than she expected and had wished for, uh, she said, I feel better when I stop thinking, why me? And I, start, and I start thinking, why not me? This is a human thing that happens to people. She said, I don't feel any better about dying, but I somehow don't feel, I, I'm not as agonized about it. Things happen. 
planes crash and car accidents happen and people get terrible illnesses. And people don't have those accidents and we're either, you know, why not me? I think about how many times uh, uh, there have been uh, theologies or religions or uh, uh, ideas about uh, why me that grow up into whole behavior systems. I'm getting, you know, I'll be, I'll, if I'm a good enough person, I'll be saved in this life. And then at some point you realize we know a lot of good people who get bad illnesses and who have accidents and um, that really a lot of it is, is, is luck. I mean, you try hard and you brush your teeth and you stop at red lights, but still things happen. And how to have, I think I'm talking a little bit about this because I've been listening to uh, Ronald Siegel on this uh, book, on his course about mindfulness. <coughs> and he said, and he's talking about how how it um, it's very attractive to people, uh, particularly as a practice, because it resembles in many important ways psychotherapy, Western psychotherapy. Now, that if you get this, among other things, that if you get to sit with yourself, and your mind uh, is all therefore more available to you, uh, he said the. Um, uh, it's harder to repress thoughts while you're sitting practicing mindfulness. I mean, you can't repress it. I mean, you can really try to not think about something. But if you try to not think about something, it's right there. Somebody said that, you know, remember when you were a child and someone said, if you, if you don't think of an elephant in the next five minutes, I'll give you this or that prize. But once you tell somebody, don't think about an elephant in the next five minutes, you can't not think about an elephant. You can, you can, you, it, can you? Yeah. I mean, it's that one of those things. You're thinking about, oh, I'm not thinking about an elephant. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not thinking about an elephant. <laughs> so when you sit down, you think everything. Uh, Joseph Goldstein used to say that. He'd say, the mind is outrageous. <laughs> and then he used to say, the mind has a mind of its own. Uh, so that when you really are relaxed and your thoughts come up, some of them are very uh, undignified, uh, ignoble. Uh, and to be able to say that's what happens. Uh, even, remember when I asked at the end of when we were sitting and I said, um, uh, who's in there meditating? Did you do that exercise? Mm -hmm. How was it? What did you think? Uh, <laughs> What? Go. When you were just talking about the elephant, I was thinking about what you said before we closed our eyes. Yeah. And how when I'm home, there isn't someone that says, may you sit and greet this moment with calm and peace and equanimity. Yeah. But when you say it, and I'm sitting here, like flicking the light switch, zoom. Uh, and so I said to myself, why am I not saying that to myself yeah. before I sit? 
And as the person says, I'll give you if you think of an elephant, it's the same thing. It's yeah. self-hypnotic um, embrace yeah. and suggestion that is irresistible. I, well, I, I'm happy to hear that, Robin. Let's Thank hear some you. other people. But Because one of the other things that Ron Siegel is saying in his book about in his course about mindfulness, about why mindfulness is like psychotherapy, is one of the things he says is it's, it's comforting. You know, because after, after all, you're sitting in there just with yourself. There's not a public address system that's hooked up to your mind that's announcing your thoughts. So however ignoble they are, nobody knows. I remember some of my teachers saying that, first of all, it would be, you know, it would be terrible if all of our thoughts were broadcast all over the place. But, uh, but we behave like we know that they're not. You think something. The, you feel it, sometimes you think something, well, I'm not, now going to say, I sometimes think something that's ignoble. Anybody ever does? Oh, okay. Think an ignoble thought. Like, and then you think the thought, oh, I shouldn't have thought that. That wasn't nice to think that. You think that? So I think the difference is, I shouldn't have thought it, is I thought it. That why shouldn't we have a mind that says, I think everything, but I don't do everything. You know, I have the, the, the big difference between human beings and uh, other kinds of animals is that we really don't operate on just instinct. That the whole basis of, of civilization is that we we mind our impulses and we notice a certain impulse but then we have an immediate sense of that that won't work this won't serve me i won't do it what did you discover when you look to see what's in there what's in there meditating what did you discover Romney? so you know i feel like there's no one there meditating when i'm really med when meditation happens I can't find uh, me doing it. Yeah. Um, but then I wonder who's the one that comes back or recognizes when I'm when there's thought happening. And who's the one that recognizes when, I, and then to come back again. Yeah. Is that the mind that's doing that? Um, well, who's could, the me that? Yeah. Well, can you imagine that a thought a thoughts arise just like hearts beat, right. thoughts arise. Um, and uh, that they're recognized by the cognitive faculty because there, are cognitive, there is a cognitive faculty that's associated with this body. Now the question is, does any body own the cognitive faculty? Well, you know? For me, it doesn't feel that way. You know, when we talk about the witness or awareness, like awareness is just aware of all these changing states yeah. that are happening. It's interesting. What else did people think or feel or think about? Yeah. Well, something very strange happened when you said, well, who is the me or the person that's meditating? And I saw myself or outside myself in a different blouse that I had intended to put on today. And I said, no, that blouse doesn't go with the, those pants. I'll just put on this other blouse. And when you suggested that, I was outside myself, seeing myself sitting here meditating, but in the original blouse that I intended. <laughs> <laughs> really strange. I, it was, I'm very visual. So I was myself in this other blouse. And I thought, wait a minute. And I didn't even realize I was doing 
I forgot your name. Caroline. Caroline, thank you. Anybody else? What happened to you when I asked that question? Go. <laughs> I saw a four-year-old four playing with a balloon. <laughs> ah. All right. Thank you, Ruth. Well, what else happened? With, you must have done something when I made that suggestion. Go. Um, I, I felt something more visceral, sort of more in the middle of my body, and it wasn't my brain, and it was sort of a core kind of feeling and energy, and, and um, it was powerful. And I thought, oh, there it is. And then I thought, everybody has this. And it made me more um, think about meeting other people's cores, you know, <laughs> and, and that other people had this powerful place that was, uh, that, that had all these good qualities in it. And um, yeah, it was a hopeful kind of thing. So it's all hopeful. I forgot your name. Adrian. Adrian, thank you. <laughs> if you want to, I'm just, I'm, this is, this is a, uh, what do you call it, a, um, well, even that I can't think of it. <laughs> I need to go this afternoon and have a medical test that requires that I not have any caffeine for 24 hours. Yeah. And you have seen the results yeah. of that. <laughs> I can't remember people's names, so I know I can't remember what I'm talking about. If I make any sense at all, it'll be a as you know, as you've probably yeah. seen for years, I have a cup of coffee all the time. And I'm, I'm quite seriously attached to that cup of coffee. <laughs> I changed the word addicted to attached, but it's seriously, it's an addiction. And I'm not really cognating in my usual way, but thank you, Adrian. <laughs> okay. Now I'm not so worried, because I was a minute ago worried. What if I can't remember the beginning of what Adrian said at the end of when she says it? You know, it really... Who knew? Oh, anyway, <laughs> this is something to think about. You ask me next week if I've taken up that habit again. We'll see. <laughs> so what else happened? Well, I, I thought about that, and then I got into, with my mind, now, is what I always want to happen really the truth, or am I making up another... <laughs> Mm. thing that I want to happen and it's not really the truth huh. and I go back and forth at myself like that sometimes so this is Elizabeth? Elizabeth yeah. oh I got it okay <laughs> alright um, well I want to tell you the story because it's on that point who's in there making plans uh, because one of the things that uh, that, uh, what, Mark? I'm just laughing at the idea. <laughs> Who's in there making plans? Yeah. <laughs> I've been listening to that, uh, I've been listening to this, this teachings on, on mindfulness, and it makes a point of, uh, how liberating it is not to, to disabuse oneself of a sense of separate self. Mm -hmm. That fundamentally, this is, experience as arising frame by frame by frame by frame uh, and uh, uh, with an awareness of the experience. And in human beings particularly, 
an awareness that has hindsight and foresight. Someone was talking about, maybe this particular professor of mindfulness was talking about, uh, it's not just being in the moment. He said, when, he said, when I put down my dog's dish full of food, and the dog addresses herself to the dish, she's not actually, it looks like she's mindful. She's paying a whole attention to the dish. But she's not paying attention to the dish in a context. She's not uh, aware of, she probably is enjoying the food. But she's not thinking, probably not thinking, yesterday's food was better, this is dried food. I, I, you know, I understand that there's a choice of dog foods and I'm not getting the best one. And the treat that I get later just before I, at nighttime that Sylvia gives me every day, the treat is much better than the food. It's not so we think that with the hindsight and foresight and the sense that this body is walking through the life, we make up stories about it, like we make up stories about, um, well, we make up stories about I'm old, but that's not a story, I am old. But I, I'm old and therefore, I was teaching in Mexico not so long ago, and in the summer, it was very hot in this particular place I was teaching. And I was teaching in a class in the middle of the afternoon, and then I had to walk back to my place where I was staying and I was walking back, and um, I was uncomfortable. And I remember my mind starting a discussion. No, it's not, it's not a discussion. It's a monologue. <laughs> you shouldn't be doing this anymore. You've been doing this a long time. But this is ridiculous, going to Mexico in the middle of the summer. It's extremely, it, 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 it's difficult. It's, it's uh, so much traveling, and now you're so tired. And you just traveled here yesterday, and you're tired. And you're tired because you're old. You used to be able to do this, but now you're tired. <laughs> And wow, you should remember what foolish that you forgot this. And I'm walking along, I'm tired, and then I think to myself, wait a minute, I'm not tired. I'm hot. I'm hot. <laughs> I go in my I go in my room. It's air conditioned. I take a shower. I'm no longer hot. I'm no longer tired. We tell ourselves certain stories, and then we fulfill the story. Is what I was thinking about. I'll tell you another story about that that I was really had in mind to tell you today about. The way that we, we, we think that we're awake to things. Oh, one of the, it, one of the, um, one of the experiments, I'll, I'll be less tongue-tied about this experiment if I read it to you. It's an experiment on what do we really notice, what do we really pay attention to. There's a well-known video of students pay, playing basketball and they're wearing black shirts and white shirts. The task that people are assigned is to watch how many times the students in the white shirts pass the basketball on the video. Do you know this? Yes. Yeah. In the middle of the video, a big black gorilla comes in, beats his chest, and exits the stage. When we ask the people to count the number of times the students with white shirts pass the basketball, about two-thirds of the audience didn't see the gorilla. This is called inattentional blindness. Perception, what we see, is terribly conditioned by culture, language, and desire. What happens in the video is that we're trying to get the number right, so we don't see the gorilla at all. Another study was done in which they took x-rays of lungs, and they asked 24 radiologists to perform a familiar lung nodule detection task. They placed a gorilla 40 time, 48 times bigger than the average lung nodule, 
on the last slide, and 83% of the radiologists did not see the gorilla. I, I saw this on a, I, I'm watching this on a DVD. So you see a slide of lungs with dots all over the place, which they're looking for an unusual dot. For, that's this particular nodule. And 48 times bigger than any of these knots is a black gorilla in the, in the left lung. But nobody saw it because they were looking for the knots. You know, that, uh, we only see what we're looking for, which is, in, people talk about that frequently when they talk about you fall in love with somebody. You fall in love with somebody, you meet somebody, and they have a few of the criteria of the people that you would be interested in. And maybe you met them online and they already listed their criteria. So you see that they, and then you meet them, and lo and behold, they, you know, they actually, they actually are employed in that job and went to that school. And they look like that picture, and you fall in love with them, and they also fall in love with you at the same time, on minimal data at that point. And that, and that maybe for some period of time you get together with them, maybe you even make a relationship, maybe even live a whole life with them. But at some point, you discover that there's more data. There's a gorilla in the left lung that you have not noticed. By the way, that would be a good name for a book, wouldn't it? About relation. You don't notice the gorilla in the left lung until the, uh, the euphoria of falling in love, because falling in love itself brings euphoria. <coughs> and behaving in a loving way brings endorphins to the mind. And then you love them, and you love them, and you love them. And then they do something that suddenly is terrible. And you say, wow, this is not the person that I started up with. But it is, actually. You just didn't notice the gorilla. So, so the idea is we don't notice a lot of things. How many people, when they ride up the highway, and get startled to see a dead deer on the side of the road? How many times have you seen a dead deer that's not a dead deer? That's a tire that's rolled on the side of the road or some piece of luggage that's fallen off a car? One of the uh, examples that uh, Ron... Um, Seagull. Seagull. Ah. This better not be permanent. <laughs> Ron Siegel talks about is evolutionarily, he said that there was a point when human beings were uh, turning into human beings in a very prototypical uh, hominids standing on their feet and walking around. It was extremely important to be able to differentiate between a beige rock behind that stand of trees or a lion behind the stand of trees. And you can make a mistake on one hand if you mistake uh, a, uh, a lion for a beige rock, you just got worried and, you know, so then you settle down again. Phew. If you mistake a beige rock for a lion, you could be dead. So that the, the, the startle in the mind from seeing what you absolutely don't want to see, like a, like a, like a, I want to tap us God, I want to think of some project that you all can do together. Uh, if you think the beige rock is a lion, you're likely to get killed. If you think the lion is a beige rock, no, if you think the lion is a beige rock, then you're going to get killed. If you think the lion is a beige rock, you're going to get killed. If you think the beige rock is a lion, you're going to get frightened. Okay. should really think about 
than this. <laughs> We have to see the mind that works. Right? <laughs> now, next week I'm going to be so clear and full of coffee. <coughs> what, uh, this is not a new thought that because we have this kind of wiring, we are wired to, to, we are wired to notice 10 times faster something that elicits alarm than something that doesn't. We, and we notice it faster, it goes to the amygdala. And it, the transmitting a, a signal to the amygdala it goes 10 times faster than it does to the frontal cortex where we figure things out. And so we, first we think, ah, it's a deer by the side of the road. No, it's not a deer. It's a, it's a tire that's come off or uh, crumpled up bags on the side of the road. Uh, and then by that time you get a hit of uh, cortisol or one of the other stress hormones and you feel a little bit stirred by it, but then phew, it's not there and the mind settles back down. And he talk, there's, a, there's a book that you probably all have heard quoted enough times called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. Do you know about that? Because it's, it's Robert Sapolsky who uh, whose uh, work has been in stress hormones and seeing what they do to the body. And zebras uh, get frightened by something, like it isn't a beige rock, it's actually a lion. And the zebras have no way of defending themselves except running fast. Uh, and giraffes have no way of defending themselves except running fast. So they run very fast until they get a tremendous shot of stress hormones it empowers them to run very fast for some period of time till they're in a safe place. Then they stop and they browse and they, they go right back to normal. Apparently they measure the, 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 they figure out in some way, maybe dead zebras never have ulcers or maybe they tranquilize them and measure the stress hormones, who knows. But zebras don't have ulcers and we do but not only ulcers of the stomach, but other stress diseases. There's a way in which, I was thinking, uh, this is not what I meant to talk about, but maybe I'll be more coherent about it. No, nah, I really want to talk about it. I'll do this anyway, I'll go back to what's here. I was, uh, I was teaching two days ago about uh, 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 the evolution of uh, interest in Buddhism amongst Westerners to, uh, amongst Westerners period. And I was speaking to a group of people at one of, from, who are congregants at a certain synagogue in San Francisco uh, because their question was lots of Jews are interested in Buddhism. And why is that? Uh, why, is that a Jewish thing? Or is, it, is Judaism better, is Buddhism better than Judaism is what they wanted to know. And, um, do you have to become a Buddhist? And do you have to become a Buddhist to be as clear-minded as you? <laughs> Too good, it's good they're not here today. <laughs> uh, so first of all, it's a, it's a not true premise. All of the Buddhists are not, the, it's not a predominant. Buddhists currently, even Westerners, not speaking of the Thai and the Vietnamese and the Burmese communities that are here that are Buddhist and Chinese, that uh, 
amongst Westerners who have become as adults allied with Buddhist practices or Buddhist centers or Buddhist meditation, there was a period of time in the 1980s and 90s when it does seem, it did seem disproportionately Jewish. And I really feel quite sure that it's not that Jews caught on to it, here's a good thing, faster than the whole population, or any other chauvinistic kind of thought about it. I think it's because there were a disproportionate number of Jews in the Peace Corps. I really think that's true, and I think it's a serendipitous event that uh, because uh, Jack was in the Peace Corps, and Joseph was in the Peace Corps, uh, Sharon was not because she was younger, but a lot of their friends were in the Peace Corps, and uh, for all I know, this Ron Siegel may have been in the Peace Corps at the same time with them. There's a bunch of people of their age, they're 10 years younger than I, who graduated from college in the late 60s, early 70s, in a time that uh, Western religion was having a little bit of a crisis. Not only the Jews, Christian religion was having a, a, a The next group of people who came up were both uh, I think very much traumatized by an awareness of the devastation of a world war. And it was then the Cold War and that that might happen again. And that people had done such a thing as dropped an atomic bomb and were, had developed a nuclear weapon. I think it was a period of time that people, younger people, uh, began to think about what's the meaning of this life, what should I do about it, what's a meaningful life which had normally, throughout history, been the purvey of uh, uh, older people. When you, when you get older, then you reflect what's the meaning of it all. I mean, some major thinkers were young and revolutionary, but, um, uh, but I think that, that it was also a time when the country was not... Uh, uh, as uh, as uh, um, ah, when uh, the financial situation of the country was not as tight as now, so it was possible for young people graduating from college to take a few years off and go in the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. Now nobody takes two minutes off. You know, I know from, as I have friends whose children are sons and daughters, no longer children, are graduating from college this month, and they all say, and he has a job lined up, and she's going to this and that program. You don't take a second. If, you get, if you're graduating with any kind of a standing from a college, you're applying for college, for a job in your last years. And they've got jobs. They couldn't go off to find themselves. That's what people were doing. Because then they could come back and then go back to school, which Jack and Joseph and all of those people did go back to school, or f and then decide, decide what they were going to do. Also, uh, the behavioral sciences were much more in vogue than they are now. So many more people going to college when they were undergraduates had the possibility of studying philosophy and Eastern religion and any kind of a religion. Now everybody's taking um, tech and and business, and uh, get a job, and law, tech and business and law, and uh, medicine is not as um, desirable. I mean, the push is not, you have to get into medical school, otherwise your life is a mess. Now you have to get a, 
you have to learn uh, programming and, uh, and get a job in the tech world. You have to get to work for, I didn't know that Apple was the largest uh, business in the world. I found that out yesterday, someone told me that. So you have to be in tech. It's very interesting to me because I've noticed after the, over the last decade or two, that when you say to somebody, oh, what's your daughter doing? Or what's your son doing? They say, they say they're in computers. Everybody is in computers, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that one way or another. But so the emphasis is not on philo philosophy. The emphasis is on mastery through computer technology. Why did I begin to tell you this whole thing? Uh -huh. Peace Corps, Jews. 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 So, oh, wait, 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 so that, that, what they were talking to me about is why are, oh, why are the Jews there first? Or the Jews are not there first. They're, they're, everybody is there the same. And, that everybody, and it wasn't only true about Judaism being interested in incorporating mindfulness into their programs because the churches, many of them, have also incorporated contemplative practices sometimes actually mindfulness practices, but certainly contemplative practices that, uh, uh, that, that they're coming back to doing this now because of the Buddhism that came along. And, and all of it also, I, I'm hopeful that I live long enough with enough wit to see some sociologists be able to put it all together because it also has to do with the fact that the 60s were a very big time of... Uh, experimentation with chemicals yeah. to alter the brain, and I'll feel better with the ingestion of this or that chemical. So the idea that it was possible for the brain to feel better uh, became something that people could think about. Before that, you'd say, I'm just a melancholy person, or so-and-so. He loses his temper very easily, but the idea that the mind could be in a, a more elevated state, a more a happy state, a more tranquil state. Both, you know, I was thinking, I, I said that by accident, but really the advent of tranquilizers starts in the 1960s, late 50s and 60s. So the whole idea that you could do something with your mind, you could calm it down. There's a scene in some movie with, of that time that's particularly funny. I think it's a Woody Allen movie where somebody uh, freaks out in a, in a department store about something or other, and somebody shouts out, does anyone have a Valium? And everyone opens their purse. <laughs> Do you remember that? I, I think it's a Woody Allen. But the whole idea that you could do something with your mind, you could calm it down, and then the idea is you could cause it to be exalted, and you could realize our connection with all beings, and you could look at people that included groups of people who you actually had grudges on, and you could feel, I actually love all these people. I don't have to be burdened with these old grudges. All of those, and the Peace Corps, and the fact that the, the, the country was more or less at peace, even when they talked about building bomb shelters for the intercontinental missiles. I think all of that conspired. And, and actually, in, in particular, I think the Peace Corps was a place that lots of uh, Jews of mid-century um, found interesting because 
the Judaism of mid-20th century was moving towards, there isn't any, the story isn't true, but uh, the group, the, the peoplehood is true, and the source of happiness is service. And so the Peace Corps was a perfect thing for them. What do you do when the story isn't true anymore? And then they asked me about whether I thought the, the stories about the Buddha were true. And I said, I think all those stories in all religions, they have magic stories because you can't tell a four-year-old a not magic story and get them to go to a place with you or get them to be interested in it. Or if somebody said, even not a four-year-old, if someone said to a 40-year-old, go on this meditation retreat, you'll become a kinder person, you'll be more sensitive. I probably would have taken umbrage about it. I'm a kind person, I'm already sensitive. Sending me to a therapy for that. Uh, so you have to say, if go on a meditation retreat, you'll feel wonderful, your mind relaxes, you'll feel uh, exalted, you'll become enlightened, you'll become liberated. <laughs> I didn't think about what liberated meant. Mm -hmm. And I think about what liberated means now very much in the sense of liberated from stories that keep it held hostage, like the story, I'm old. I am old, but I can and can't do certain things. And I don't have to not do certain things before I can't do them. I, uh, I had an interesting experience these last few weeks. This I was going to tell you. For reasons of um, too complicated and too tangential to go into, uh, I, I, had, I, I needed to make a disposition about boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of slides and photographs from the last 60 years. What are you going to do with that? We were also uh, enthusiastic about cameras and new things that we could do, that we accumulated these boxes and boxes and tons of photos. So I said, well, I have more free time now. Uh, I'll go through them all, and I'll, I'll pick out some, and uh, I'll, I'll make a video out of it. There are people who you pick out a certain number, they put them together, they make a video, and that way, uh, seriously, 40 albums full of photos over all the years, and slides, and uh, old 16-millimeter uh, film translated into video, no one is going to look at it, so I'm going to make it into a short thing. And I started to go through it, and then I had a deadline because I had all this stuff out, and my whole house is covered with boxes. So unhappy about it. So I'm pushing myself, and I realized that as I went through it, first of all, it's quite amazing to see pictures of yourself at different ages and how you feel about it. And I began to think, you think plenty about, oh, look how pretty we were, and look how cute these children were that now have gray beards and all that. But on top of that, I don't, I don't, I could not mostly feel what that person who looked like that was feeling. I know it's me. Do you know, do you know how you, I know how I felt when I was frightened on a certain occasion. But I don't know what my personality felt like at that time. I mean, I could tell you five frightening occasions in my life, and you could too. But uh, what was I like on a daily basis at that time? And I think there's no I that's like anything on a daily basis. It's just what it is. Um, you think so? Or 
On the other hand, if I go back to a college reunion and I'm standing uh, in, a, in a library talking to somebody uh, behind a wall and somebody else can't see me but they could hear me and I laugh, they say, oh, Sylvia's here. <laughs> and I know I have a certain laugh because two of my children have it and a couple of my grandchildren have it. But it's a gene. The other ones don't have it. It's a gene. And the <laughs> no, but it's true. They're thinking your family. In my family, I have children and grandchildren who do not burst out laughing, who actually, sometimes they find things funny. They smile a little bit. But they don't do ha. It's not their way. So I think it's a gene. And that I've had all my whole life. So what stays with you? And, and does that mean there's a self there anyway? Because we would say about Sylvia, she laughs. She's a good storyteller. But is that, is that myself or is that a, a talent? She can't carry a tune. So it's not all the things that I can do. I can't carry a tune. Hmm? I, uh, I can't, uh, I have uh, very poor eye-hand coordination. I, I'm not, I was never good at ping pong or tennis or baseball or stickball or anything else. Wherever you had to line yourself up to be. But I was a good skier and I still ride my bicycle. So I have a lot of balance, but not eye-hand coordination. So where's all this stuff? And I think it's coded into the brain on the genes. And it's, the whole reason I'm telling you that is that it, the thing is if, that what's not good is if we make a story out of it. You know, but uh, Joseph used to say things like, um, <coughs> maybe he would say, or never mind Joseph, I would say, uh, I'm a good storyteller, I can't carry a tune, and the sky is blue. That's about it. You know, but, you know, I mean, other things as well. But they don't have to have a valence attached to them. What would you say about yourself? That's not a bad exercise. Think of three things. Then the third is the sky is blue. What are the first two? So then to be talented or not talented in some way is an accident. Hmm? <clears throat> I have a friend who, who, who writes uh, musicals, yeah. musical comedies. He's done it ever since he was 14 that I knew him. Well, but it's, it's, a, it's a gift. Yeah. I mean, it's not... It's not you exactly. It's something yeah. that you have that's, that you're lucky to have in this case, but yeah. It, yeah. It's, um, it's not you, you know. Well, it's just, it's just a thing that you have, like the it's other a things thing. you talk about, like, it's a, a characteristic. It's a characteristic, and certainly with talents, you have a talent, and uh, it has to be nurtured. I have a friend who's a, who's a, a professional um, horn player, and she's, she's just retired from teaching at Juilliard, actually. And uh, she said, you know, you can listen to people who are competent horn players. The, the, the conversation was about who do you take on as a student to mentor these days. She said, well, you can listen to five horn players, all of whom are good and competent, and they do it right. But, and, but at some of them... Well, you, you, especially if, they, if, they're, if they're younger, if they're not adults, some of them you see that they have something 
that they could go far with this. Yeah, but he says, but that's not you. That just it's not you. Yeah. But I disagree. Uh, I think it is you because I think it infuses your being, that talent, that particular talent. All right. It infuses you. It's what occupies you. Uh, may not be that arm or, or that yeah. leg, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not you. But that, that arm or leg is not you. Yeah. You is what's coming from your inner self. And that talent probably completely um, occupies you if it's a real talent, a real special well, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying, so let's have some more ideas. Come on. Okay, Nancy. Well, I was just the first thing that popped in for me is I'm tall. And then it's like, ugh, what a <laughs> thing to bring forward in this deeply spiritual place. But, but I am tall. <laughs> and, and I think on a, it informs my experiences all yeah. the time. It and it informs, informs the That's right. filters that I see and don't mm -hmm. see through. So I'm guessing my life as a tall person is quite different than the life of someone as a short person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe let's talk a little bit more. Uh, but when somebody, when you meet somebody and uh, they want to know about you, would you say I'm tall? They already know that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they said, Nancy, I'd like to get to know you. I mean, the, ne the next thing, I'm a doctor. So, yeah, so I'm a doctor. But both of those, if people bring those up first, I yeah. kind of feel, uh, like, <laughs> let's get to the real me. Yeah, yeah. And there's another way to bring it up where it's actually acknowledging yeah. a part. So I, don't, I think it's really interesting. Well, the, the, it is interesting. Let's talk a little bit more for you before I have any ideas. I think our genetic makeup is what differentiates us from each other. Mm -hmm. And that genetic makeup is just a physical component of mm -hmm. this body. Mm -hmm. um, how we how we use that is also conditioned by our upbringing, mm -hmm. our parents, mm -hmm. and how they you know position us as a certain thing in our upbringing. So if a person has real talent, mm -hmm. and doesn't use it. I mean the genetic. Mm. Makeup is mm. the talent, mm -hmm. but if they're not conditioned to pursue that, then they won't. Mm. It's just I think it's that simple. Yeah. It has nothing to do with whether we are who we are, mm. except that it does have everything to do with who we are. Well, yeah. But I think it's the conditioning and the genetic makeup mm -hmm. and all those things that lead a person to do what they do. As yeah. they get older. So then the question is, the question is, is there, there are certainly characteristics and ways of people, and you'd say it's great to be around so-and-so because they, 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 you just feel good with them or whatever it is. There is a way that people know about us. Is it the same? Does it change uh, from day to day? Are, are you the same you today that you were yesterday or... When you were ten years younger, does our essential you is there an essential you that changes, or are there characteristics that inform how you are in the world that continue on? You certainly have certain character. 
your tallness is a characteristic and your your scholarship in becoming a physician is a characteristic. See, the question is, do we have to, are, if, this is a really important question. If uh, I, I have a certain skill and I present myself and the skill works, let's say I'm a good storyteller and I tell stories. Uh, what if I took on about that and I thought I was really special and better than everybody else about that? Or what if I just thought that's my thing, that, you know, that's what I do? Uh, I actually think that I do what I do because of everybody who taught me and everybody who applauded when I told a good story when I was five years old. Somebody, a cousin of mine has a new grandchild and he's 82 and it's his first grandchild and he's so excited about it. And he called and we talked the longest time about the phenomena, what a phenomenon this new grandchild was and, and he's like a couple of weeks old. And he said, but you know, what the, his main thing is when he sees anything new, like he recognizes it's new, he smiles. And then you smile back at him and then he smiles more. So I thought this child is in a good position because people have been smiling back to him and conditioning the fact that when he's 83 or 43 or even 13, he's probably going to smile when he meets the world. So probably part of it is he was born with a reasonably relaxed nervous system. And the other part is that his whole family was smiling at him way before he was born because they were so happy to see him. If I, if I think to myself, if I would, this is my skill, you know, I, um, actually when I don't teach particularly well and I'm not screwed together right, as I am not screwed together right, especially today, I think my committee didn't show up, you know? Um, usually my whole committee shows up. And uh, actually my committee was probably here, my body didn't show up. <laughs> hey. I think we have givens. Yeah. I'll give you, uh, I'm slightly funny, I'm directionally challenged, and the sky is blue. Okay, there you are. Do you know, and, and that just, if you want to list, it's like the geometry when they give you a given, which I was not good at geometry either, but <laughs> it, it's just, we have certain, yeah. I would say characteristics, or yeah. we have ge genetic things about us, and then there's a whole lot of other stuff that changes all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and, uh, I, I think that the, 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 the Buddhist understanding of that, as, as soon as I take on about it, one way or the other, that was a great class I did. That was a half-assed class that I did. As soon as I take on about it, one way or the other, I've created a self that now has a problem. I have to be equally great next time, or I have to atone for that or worry about it until I come back next week. If I say, you know, this is what it is. Let's see what happens next. Self-judgment sucks. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like we could write a new eightfold path, as Buddha said. <laughs> Self-judgment sucks. Okay, Phyllis, and then you. Well, I, I think what you're asking is a question that can potentially go very deep. And when I hear that question, and as I've been just processing it a little bit as we've been talking, uh, for me, it it, all those things, all those givens are... Um, kind of arbitrary, like in this lifetime. And uh, for me, what, what I feel like defines me is what my uh, soul resonates with. And that could be, you know, the people I love and art and music and dancing and, and the things that really make my, my soul my quiver. 
you know, and, and uh, as I age, I'm coming to realize more and more that my body, you know, I, I, I take care of her more and identif I identify with her less. So I will say something like, um, I'm gonna take really good care of her because this is what I'm wearing this time around. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but that's my body, it's not necessarily, you know, me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that I dis dismiss her because I'm, I try to love her as much mm -hmm. as I can. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, to me it goes to beyond um, uh, characteristics. Like, I can do this, I can do that, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what's uh, deeply essential mm -hmm. and probably what connects all of our souls mm -hmm. in a greater mm -hmm. consciousness mm -hmm. when we will be there. Mm -hmm. um, so Exactly so, I think. Wait, wait, go ahead. You, you had something I don't remember much about the seventh grade, but my seventh grade social studies teacher, our final test was, does the man make the times or does the time make the man? And I remember just being so enthralled by that question mm. and writing way beyond the end of the period. <laughs> and it, that question still has me thinking all the time, thinking about the context and the times in which we live and how that context mm -hmm. creates who we are. I grew mm -hmm. up on the East Coast. I moved here in the late, my late 20s. I'd be a very different person if I mm -hmm. continued to live on the East Coast than moving to the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, so all of those, all of those. So is there someone or is it this whole organism? Is it this body? Um, well, then we get to, or is this a body? The Buddha would have said, there's nothing here. Is There's uh, perception, there's cognition, there's all those capabilities of this mind. And uh, moment by moment, we recognize what's going on as long as we do. But then when, when this body finishes, what happens? And then you, there are all kinds of stories about what happens again. And is there something essential that goes on? Or is there nothing that goes on? And uh, it's not so clear um, because uh, the, the early Buddhism is also as a reflection of the times was very much you, got, you, you practiced to see what's really true so that there would be nothing left to be reborn because the zeitgeist was that life is difficult, really difficult. Not only the difficulties we have of distress when it's not what we like, but really the hardships of living 2,500 years ago um, when half of one's children died before they grew up or you died in childbirth or it just wasn't it's easier to live in the developed world now. So that the fabric of life was more of getting used to loss, I think. So that was really the times make the person and the person. But the, the idea of, uh, of uh, we do this in order to avoid being reborn is a, is a, is a theology, is, an, uh, is a, a dogma about how things are, and I don't think it's provable any way. I mean, some people feel it. Some of my colleagues resonate very clearly to it. I think I'm reborn all the time, 
every minute, actually, depending on what was the minute before. And I don't know what the minute after I die is going to be like and what's going to happen after that, if anything. And, I, you know, uh, I don't know. I think one of the reasons that Westerners liked uh, Eastern thought so well when it arrived in the West is that uh, they were kind of hoping that they didn't get enlightened and not come back. They liked the idea of coming back because life for us is pretty nice in our, in our context here. I actually noticed that, uh, well, this was a part of the end of the photo story that I wanted to tell you, is I think this is what happens, uh, that, uh, that one of the things that we are liberated from is some of the thoughts that we have that we really need this or we really need that. Those are the thoughts that really keep us stuck. I'll be happy if uh, it, whatever happens. And I've been looking at all these old pictures. And I came across a fair number of old photos of my parents' extended families. My parents are long dead. Uh, I don't have any cousins. I have two cousins. But, and they're alive. But we have very little. Uh, we see each other rarely. They live on the East Coast. And my children don't particularly know them very well. But I had, I had aunts and uncles and cousins and all of this stuff. Now I have all these photos of them. And a lot of them are big, blown-up photos of them. They take up a lot of boxes of photos of people that nobody knows who they are but me. <laughs> and they, you know, they... You probably have the same boxes of people. So uh, I, I slowly, slowly, not in one... When something is interesting, something framed in a beautiful frame, I take it over to the hospice by the bay where they'll sell it as an antique. If something is uh, an unframed 11 by 14 picture of my mother's second cousin on his bar mitzvah, I don't need it, and nobody else needs it. And by, by yesterday, I was so tired of triaging it, I tore it up and put it in the garbage, and I felt really very... If I if this person had a, I have no idea. This person is dead. There's no one who ever knew him. I have no idea if this person ever had progeny. I have nobody to give it to. If I knew and had to put every one of those photos in an envelope, and send it to the progeny, I'd never be finished with the sending. But at the same time, yeah. that person might have a photo of you. That probably, not, I'm not saying nobody <laughs> else knows who this is. Yeah, they might. But I no longer have a photo. <laughs> but what to do? Um, for years, we used to take a photo, because we lived far from all our extended family, we would take a photo every year in uh, August to September of us and all our children and all our animals. And... Uh, and send it, make a New Year's card and send it on Rosh Hashanah to all of our extended family. Did it every year, and I then I and I'd keep one as an eight by ten, and I'd frame it and I had it on the wall. And one year, I we were late taking the picture. By that time, I had grandchildren, so I really wanted to take the picture, and assemble everybody, and we take the picture. 
and I was still in those days developing film, so I bring it to be developed, and then I run back to pick out the very best picture, and I'm in, to be able to make uh, copies of it to make Rosh Hashanah cards to send to my family, and I pick through them, and I say, oh, this is the best picture, and they say, how many copies should we make? And I started to think that there weren't very, there were nobody. There was a couple of old aunts somewhere that I didn't know their address. And accidentally, the, I had so been operating on automatic pilot, like this is what you do. You make the picture, you make the Rosh Hashanah cards. It was such a moment of things pass. And if I didn't know that, then you know that. I remember because the person was waiting for me to say, uh, how many do you want? So I said, well, I'll take 10 and uh, make me an 11 by 14. I'll frame it. And, uh, and now, having moved and changed and moved out of uh, a place that we had in Sonoma and living only in, uh, in Marin, I don't have any walls. I ran out of walls, so I looked at the pictures. I, I, didn't, I, I won't throw them out. Now the, now, the, now the ploy is I put them in boxes and deliver them to children and grandchildren and say, you do something with these. But the people, but I, only, I limit that to the people that they know. Not to the people that they, not to my mother's second cousin on his bar mitzvah. They don't need that one. And I, and I'm aware when I get, when at the end of the day, when I'm triaging and I'm throwing these out and saving these out and saving and these out and saving, that I start to throw out more. That the the feeling in myself that I need this has really lessened by the end of the day. What I need more is to have my <laughs> my surfaces cleaned up and have a little bit more space in my house. Anyway. We made it through this morning. I drove here, too. <laughs> Maybe I should worry about that. I go have the test, and then I go immediately to Starbucks. <laughs> However, maybe I'll moderate it, as the Buddha said. He, I'm not about coffee, just about moderation. <laughs> may we all be peaceful. May I be able to come next week and tell you what was in that? forum tomorrow. May all beings be well. <coughs> Sylvia, your glasses? I see them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.